Rare MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, use promo code RINGERMLB. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. This episode is also brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, here on The Ringer, we have our disagreements. In fact, most of what we do is argue with each other on the internet, but... One thing we don't have any debate about is this. Miller Lite is the great tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs of Bud Light, so there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let me hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite, hold true. Oh, Pod, why hast thou forsaken me? Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. As always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network. The NBA might be showing reruns for the finals for the fourth year in a row, but our Ringer NBA show continues to pump out new content. Five shows in this past week alone. Be sure once you're done listening to that to listen to On Shuffle with host Micah Peters. That's our music podcast, the latest addition to the Ringer Podcast Network. Be sure to check out TheRinger.com where we have more coverage of solo than you can handle, plus a wide range of MLB content. We've got Zach Cram on players ranging from Mookie Betts to Miles Michaelis, and Ben and I handle everybody in between. Ben's got something on Josh Hader, perhaps the most exciting player in the major leagues this year, and I wrote about Vladito Guerrero, the most exciting player outside the major leagues this year. So we've got a great show for you today. Uh, We're going to talk about... Labor Torres, Yankees young second baseman with Ben Glicksman, and then Ben Lindbergh was going to come on and wrap things up with Mike Trout talk. We're going double-barreled Ben, but first we're going back to an old favorite. Probably more than anything else, I get asked about when is the Jerry DePoto song coming back, and we're going to talk to Zach Cram about Jerry DePoto's latest masterwork right on the other side of this music. What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Zach Cram about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Zach Cram about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? That's right. We have been waiting all season to hear not the official theme song, but the I guess our, our second biggest hit. What did Jerry DePoto do? And uh, playing the role of Meg Rowley today will be the ringer's own Zach Cram to talk about Jerry DePoto's latest masterwork. So, Zach, how you doing? Jerry DePoto did something. This is such an exciting day for the ringer.com. Tell me what Jerry DePoto did. Jerry DePoto, this was over the weekend. He responded to Robinson Cano's suspension and D. Gordon's injury by trading f- with Tampa Bay. He added Alex Colome, who is a closer and is now going to be presumably the Mariners' eighth inning guy. He added Denard Spann to add some outfield depth, and he gave up Andrew Moore, who is a decent pitching prospect, and Tommy Romero, who is a further away pitching prospect. So this is pretty much at its core a salary dump from Tampa and the addition of two supplemental pieces for Seattle who won't make or break the Mariners playoff push but at least at the moment while Seattle is suffering through depth problems and a lot of injuries uh, is going to help them out at least uh, prevent them from populating their lineup with replacement level players every day. 
I love this trade for Seattle because Span isn't awesome, uh, but he can put the bat on the ball. He can still run a little bit. He can play serviceable defense in a corner, and they've kind of needed that. Ben, uh, ben Gamble's been up and down. They've had... I mean, they've been so desperate for for outfield help that Ichiro, before his retirement, had 47 plate appearances in this young season. He's not good Denard Span anymore, but he's fine. And fine is all they needed. And Colome, I think, is he's important because he reduces the workload on Edwin Diaz, who uh, eliminates the temptation to use him as sort of a consistent multi-inning multi-inning stopper slash closer, uh, which he's proven he's capable of doing, but he is far and away their best relief pitcher. You don't want to burn him. You don't want to risk burning him out. And at the same time, he gives them another weapon to use where maybe you're not using Juan Nicasio uh, in that multi-inning role all the way to the eighth inning. I think just adding one good relief pitcher has such a, a knock-on effect that I think it's it's hard to, to overstate the impact of that. Um it's just a, a way that you can make your entire team better just by making everybody's job within the pitching staff just a little bit easier. And as far as what they gave up, Moore was one of their better pitching prospects, but I feel like you'd only say that in a system as bad as as Seattle's. I think I think he's a big league pitcher. I just think he's sort of a back-end starter, strike thrower type. You know, he's somebody who's a tweak to his fastball, maybe adding another secondary pitch away from becoming maybe a solid number three, number four, but he was not going to be the difference for the Mariners this year. I, I, I think he has value, but I don't think uh, the Mariner, he was going to be the difference between the Mariners making the playoffs and not this season. What's interesting about this deal is that in recent years, as we've encountered you know, several iterations of a bullpen revolution, is that a lot of teams have added relief pitchers at the deadline with the express purpose of setting themselves up for October. You had the Cubs adding Araldis Chapman, for instance, the Indians adding Andrew Miller when they knew they were already going to make the playoffs and just wanted to better position themselves to face lineups in October. But what the Mariners are doing here is adding to their relief core to get themselves to October, to help them over the next three, four months of the regular season. Like you said, there's a linking effect where now Juan Nicasio and Nick Vincent, when he's back from injury, can move to lower leverage roles. But I think what was shrewd about this is two parts. One, because of Robinson Cano's suspension, that freed up about $11 million for the Mariners because they don't have to pay Cano for the 80 games while he's out. And what that means is... Colome and Span are not cheap per se, but they have salaries that combined cost about $11 million the rest of the season. Tampa's kicking in a little bit of money, but essentially they're slotting into Cano's salary spot. That's what made this deal palatable for Mariners' ownership. But also because the Mariners have such a poor farm system, the fact that Andrew Moore is one of their better prospects speaks volumes about Seattle's system, is they probably weren't going to be able to get even a decent starting pitcher at the deadline. And right now their rotation is still James Paxton and a bunch of guys who are hanging on with either poor peripherals or good peripherals that we don't really expect to last. I don't know if Marco Gonzalez is going to be a number two yeah, I was starter. Say, you could say Marco Gonzalez, but... <laughs> yeah, he's, he's okay, um, but I don't know if that's the rotation you want to compete into October with. But if you have a bullpen that can give you solid four innings every night, that really helps out. It 
prevents your starters from having to go three times through the order. It helps your offense in the late innings if they don't have to chase as big a deficit. It really, like you said, has such a big trickle-down effect and will matter even before October in this case. And that's why I like that they did this so early. That might be my favorite part of this trade. I think it's it all the pieces make sense from a roster construction standpoint i think using what they have if they don't have prospects then you got to use salary flexibility to uh, to to make it work if you're trying to contend but i love that they didn't wait until the end of june or the deadline because so often the Mar- i mean the mariners are are 33 and 20 right now uh they've already outperformed their pythagorean record by 5 wins I think they're they're a good team, but I think they're closer to twenty eight and twenty five than they are to to thirty three and twenty on, um, just on on pure talent, particularly without Cano for the probably about seventy games now that now he served a little bit of his suspension. But they are making these moves while they have the greatest possible impact. Because I don't think the price would have gone down uh, that much between now and July, and they're. Now, it, by making these moves now, as opposed to um, waiting to the deadline, they have another two months, really, to um, to enjoy the benefits of having Denard Span and, and Colome on the roster. And sometimes that's hard to to pull off because we talk about, um, you know, we've we've talked around a Manny Machado trade about seven or eight different times, you and me, on this pod so far this season. But you, in order to shake loose a big piece like that, the team that's giving up giving him up has to have given up on their season and nobody's done that really by uh by mid to late may as except for i guess the the rays who are having this they're they're joining with the marlins with the statewide just not making a good faith effort to compete and i think if it's it sucks but credit to the mariners for recognizing an opportunity and and taking their mark when cano was suspended we talked on this podcast just two weeks ago. And I think I said something like, well, the Angels are ahead of Seattle and this might you know, move Seattle even further down the rankings in terms of AL wildcard contention. Well, since then, Seattle is 10 and three and the Angels are four and nine. That's a huge difference. Seattle is now a number of games up on the Angels. They're up by five games in the loss column, six on the Athletics. And while the Mariners are a very flawed team, it's not like the Angels or Athletics are complete teams either. The Blue Jays aren't a complete team. The Twins aren't a complete team. So the Mariners' cushion matters right now, even though their wins over recent weeks, as you alluded to, with them outperforming their run differential, nine of their last 11 wins are by a single run. They're undefeated in extra innings. They have the most wins in the majors in one-run games. So one, that's an impact that their bullpen has. Other teams that have been good in one-run games are the Brewers and Yankees, who have probably the best bullpens in baseball. But it also just matters in that Seattle has had a pretty weak schedule so far. A lot of their wins recently have been against the Tigers and the Rangers. Not great teams. And they have one of the hardest schedules over the rest of the season. But now they have a cushion, so... In mid-June, when they have a two-week stretch where they play the Red Sox and Yankees 10 times in a row, they can go 3-7 and seven and still be well above 500. And we talk about that. I mean, we were talking after the first two weeks of the season as if the Mets had already done enough work to bump their cushion up to the point where they would have a decent shot at making the playoffs. And I don't know if that's the case anymore, but the Mariners are right now, baseball prospectus, they have 
Baseball Prospectus is, has him in for 87 wins projected and a 52.5% chance of making at least a wild card round. That's up 22.2% in the past seven days, which no other team's gone up. Well, sorry, the, the Brewers have gone up all that much, almost that much. But having a 20-point rise in your playoff odds, particularly this early in the season in one week, is just astounding. And it speaks to exactly what you've been saying. Not only have they been good, but they've taken advantage of a weak spot in the schedule and hiccups by their competitors. I do think for the the sake of Mariners fans, we should say that while Seattle is currently tied in the loss column with, uh, with Houston, I don't think anybody, including probably Jerry DePoto, believes that Seattle will keep pace with Houston. Uh, right now, if you look at their overall records, yes, they have the same number of losses. But if you look at what their record should be by run differential, which is a better predictor of future success. Houston is 12 games better than the Mariners right now. There's a massive talent differential there. So when we talk about Seattle's wildcard chances, really the entire American League right now is fighting for that second wildcard spot because Houston's so good in the West and the Yankees and Red Sox are so good and one will win the East and one will win the first wildcard. But you say that and it's not... And listen, being optimistic about the Mariners' chances of making the playoffs is a very unfamiliar place for me to be standing. But you you say that, but the Astros are going to win that division. Uh, the one of the Yankees or Red Sox is going to win uh, the other wild card spot. But tell me, just go down that list of, of other American League teams, whether it's the Angels, the Twins, uh, or do you think the the Blue Jays are going to make up? All that ground, do you think the Rays are going to play any better than 500 ball? I don't see a team except, apart from the Angels, that that I think has a, a a good shot at catching Seattle right now. They're just, they're ahead right now. And I think that that uh, four-game cushion they've got over LA is is huge over the, over the last four months of the season. I, I think I still would take the Angels, but it's definitely more of a coin flip I at this too, point. I might too, but... Yeah, I, I think the Angels have... One, they have just more top-level talent. And two, I think they have a bit more flexibility when it comes to adding players in July. But if we're talking about, you know, dreaming about the Mariners making the playoffs for the first time since 2001, either the Yankees or Red Sox is going to potentially have 100 wins and then face James Paxson in a wildcard game. That's not a an encouraging scenario for those dominant teams. And eh, it's getting, it's getting way it's... ahead of ourselves, but... I mean, Cleveland made the World Series two years ago when their entire rotation was Corey Kluber and then a good bullpen. It's not like James Paxson and a good bullpen is all that different, and I certainly would not bet on Seattle to make the World Series, but it's a good time to be a Mariners fan, and we haven't been able to say that a lot recently, as as recently as two weeks ago. Here's what I'd say about that. I think James Paxson's great in a one-game playoff. I We'll we'll see if James Paxton holds up over the entire season uh, for starters. But let's say they get to that point, they get to the wild card game on the road with Paxton on the mound. I don't know that I like him. Uh, I don't know that he gives you an advantage over Severino or Sale in that that one game playoff. So that's the only reason I'd push back on on that. Uh, but so my Mariners optimism is I think it's eminently possible. I think it's something that we absolutely ought to be talking about that they could make the, the wild card game. But I think if that happens, they'd probably get creamed by Boston or New York, just like the twins did last year, which sucks for those of us who like the wealth to be spread around a little bit. But I just think that's, that's the way I see it going right now. And even, and like we said, there's every possibility that, that uh, the angels catch them and, and uh, break out of this funk. But 
this is not where I expected the Mariners to be at this point. And it's it's very interesting and full credit to Jerry Depoto for, for jumping on it like this. There's a part of me that really wants Robinson Cano to just have a huge September and propel the Mariners to the playoffs and then he oh, can't God. participate because of his suspension. I'm too tired. I'm too tired <laughs> to deal with deal with those takes. Speaking of being old and tired, this is a little bit off topic. Um, I think it was Mike Petriello of of MLB.com uh, said the time might have com- might be now for the Angels to just release Albert Pujols. I'm curious what you think about that because it's a I I think the time had sort of come and I wonder if there was like a normative element to you got to wait for him to get to 600 home runs and 3,000 hits. But now that those those markers are gone, I wonder even if you eat all the salary because there's no getting off of that contract, but. Uh, just having the roster spot, having the expectation that he's got to be in the lineup and in the middle of that lineup, I think if they get down to if they wind up missing the playoffs by a game or two, we might have been looking at this a little bit differently if they had even a replacement level DH. So last year when Pujols was probably the worst player in baseball, he had an on-base percentage of 286. Can you guess what his on-base percentage is this year right now? It's also 286. Uh, so he's okay. hitting for slightly more power, but not by a meaningful amount for a DH to have, or I mean a first baseman, but essentially a DH. He's playing first. To have such a poor batting line is really just you know not palatable for a lineup of a contender. I wonder if uh, the Hanley Ramirez DFA last week uh, will spur any you know domino effect like if Jacoby Ellsbury ever comes back from injury the Yankees don't have a roster spot for him I think Pujols is another candidate for that so I wonder if we'll see a lot of big money contracts being eaten right now but Pujols especially Mike Sosha hitting him fourth every day I get that lineup construction doesn't matter all that much and that he's being deferential to a veteran but Andrelton Simmons has been hitting well for a year and a half now Shohei Otani is a much better hitter than Pools at this point. Moving those guys up to hit behind Trout or in front of Trout would be a much better use of the lineup than having Pools hit into double plays whenever Trout and Upton get on base. Right. It's lineup lineup construction isn't the the be all end all, but it matters a little. And I just we're looking at at the way this AL uh, AL West slash AL Wild Card race is, is shaking out. It might come down to that game or two that. Uh, that shuffling your bullpen in May gives you, or writing your lineup differently, or getting rid of Pujols. So it's, I, I understand. Like this is the kind of move that if you're playing a computer game you made two years ago, but once you're dealing with actual people and the actual, like it would be a huge story if they just released him. It would be, it would, it would be, like I I almost think it's easier to to keep him on the roster and play him. But it's definitely not the best best thing for the team right now. So I think that's something that I wonder if the Angels it will reach a point where it becomes urgent enough that they finally do something about it. He's hit one home run in the last three weeks, and you know he's not walking, he's not able to run, he's not able to field, and it's sad. But Albert Pujols with a below average walk rate and a below average isolated power, it's still kind of strange for me to watch as someone who grew up and Pujols was one of the first stars I really remember following. But every night right now, I'm basically watching an Angels game because the rest of the roster is so much fun. And man, like whenever he hits a ball that's kind of in the gap and he thinks about turning it to second and tries to use a burst of acceleration that just isn't there, it's sad to watch every night. Yeah. 
Well, that was a downer. I didn't mean to to steer this into such a sad way to end the segment, but happy uh, podcast for the Mariners, though. Yeah, it's very exciting. So we'll we'll keep track of this. I am. I was so sure that we weren't going to get any interesting uh, pennant races, particularly in the AL, and at least through two months, I'm happy to be proved wrong. So as this develops, we will. As Jerry Depoto makes more trades, we'll we'll talk about that more and see how all this shakes out. But until then, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Always a pleasure having Zach on the podcast. We're going to be back with Ben Glixman to talk about the Yankees and Glaber Torres right after these messages. In 2002, the Oakland A's introduced advanced statistical methods into the world of baseball, forever changing the sport. In 2012, Upstart introduced advanced statistical methods into the world of lending, providing its borrowers with a way to get rid of high-interest debt without the traditional underwriting process. Upstart offers personal loans that go beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your creditworthiness and reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. Go online and find out your upstart rate in just two minutes. Checking is free and will never affect your credit. Once your loan is approved, the funds will be transferred to you the very next business day. Then you can use the funds to pay off credit cards, consolidate debt, and even make a large purchase. The choice is yours. Over 100,000 people have used Upstart. Now it's your turn. Hurry to upstart.com slash MLB show to find out how low your upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes two minutes and won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash MLB show. Loans are offered by Cross River Bank, a New Jersey state chartered commercial bank. Restrictions apply. For details, visit upstart.com slash MLB show. All right, my next guest is Ringer editor Ben Glixman joining me from a phone booth in New York of all places. How you doing, Ben? Uh, I'm doing great. New York is uh, the weather is nice today, and the phone booth is a little warm. But uh, but yeah, good to be talking to you. Yeah, we're going to be talking about. Well, we'll see how good it is because uh, we're going to be talking about. Uh, in the words of MGMT, the youth are starting to change, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the. I, well, I make that joke, and I realize now that song's ten years old, so that's not like that. That song yeah, they've done it. Is it? Yeah, fully changed at this point. <laughs> The process is over. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you a list of four sons of former Texas Rangers. And you're going to tell me which one makes you feel the oldest. Uh, One of them is Derek Rodriguez, who uh, is about to be 26. He's the son of Pudge Rodriguez, called up to the San Francisco Giants over the weekend. Uh, Another is Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who I wrote about last week. He's hitting 433, 481, 713, and AA at 19. Then there's Fernando Tatis Jr., who's hitting 263, 332, 498 at AA, also at the age of 19. And then Preston Palmero, who is in the Orioles system, hitting 286, 349, 492 in uh, high A ball at age 23. Which one of those? I, I heard you groan at Preston Palmero. Yeah, I think it's Palmero. I mean, so... Vlad Guerrero Jr. would probably be the answer if I weren't so familiar with him at this point. It's just like every baseball fan has had him on their radar all season at this point just because he's been ripping the cover off of the ball. But yeah, Palmero is not a guy that I was as aware existed. And the fact that he's almost in the major leagues definitely makes me feel 10 years older than I am. So when I was looking up uh, Derek Rodriguez, I came across like I was aware that Pudge played for six different teams. Uh, I don't think I could have named more than four. Do you want to give it a shot? Pudge Rodriguez is six. I think he played for the Yankees for a hot second. He did play for the Yankees. That's the one I always forget. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, I'm more familiar there. So yeah, Yankees, Rangers, definitely. Um, 
geez, beyond that, I'm trying to think. Pudge Rodriguez. Um, Tigers? Yep. That's three of the three of the six. Who else did he play for? Um, did he play for the Nationals Expos? Like one of those? Yes. Yep. I don't. I don't know which of the which iteration of that franchise it was, but I this is he played for one of them. This is the one he wrapped it up with the Nationals and the uh, also played for the Astros and the Marlins. Went to the World Series that oh, one the year Marlins, with the Marlins. Yeah, of course, the Marlins. But I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten the the, the Nats one. He caught. I believe he caught Steven Strasburg's major league debut, and about the same time this was happening, the. Um, Robin Ventura and Nolan Ryan headlock game was on ESPN Classic, and Padre Rodriguez was the catcher there, too. So, 21-year career in the major leagues. Anyway. And now his son is, like, 21 years old and about to enter the He's, His son's almost 26, yeah. So, I was going to talk about talk a little bit more about... That makes me feel old. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's good that we move a little bit forward. Okay, we're going to leave Greg Maddox's son pitching for UNLV over the weekend and go to the, the man of the hour. Labor Torres, Yankee, uh, well, would be shortstop, but he's playing second base now with Didi Gregorius, who we've talked about on the podcast, Taryn, the cover off the ball. He uh, he is coming off a stretch from May 15th through 25th where he hit six home runs in eight games. And this seems like weirdly between the Vladito hype um, and then some of the you know, like the Otani uh, Otani coming up as a rookie, Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies. It almost seems like Torres is getting lost a little bit because he's not the big face of the Yankees the way Otani or Acuna might be for their respective teams, and he's not freakishly young. He is just sort of the kind of rookie that we would that we've come to expect since I don't know the Harper Trout generation. Yeah, I mean he's been he's been incredible. I think he's definitely started to break out from that. Like, I mean, it's weird to see to say that any player is overshadowed playing for the Yankees, but yeah, he's definitely not the face of the team in the way that someone like. Aaron judges. Um, so I think this week has gone a long way in helping him break out. I've just been really surprised by the power because all through mm-hmm. the minor leagues, you knew that he had all the tools that he was being sort of touted as a really, really complete prospect. Um, but, but you look back at his minor league stats and I think like, I think he hit like 11 homers is the most he ever hit in a single season in the minor leagues. I may be wrong on yeah. that, but it's something right in there. Yeah, so yeah. the fact yeah, so the fact that he's already has nine and hit home runs in four consecutive games, I think, is what's really taken me aback. Just because that, like, I knew he was going to be good. I didn't know he would have this element to his game. Yeah, he he was always a guy like sort of what we thought Javi Baez was going to be because Javi Baez was not supposed to be the glove first prospect. He was supposed to be sort of a smaller, um, more compact, powerful power hitter. And you know, Torres had. Um, there were some of the same concerns about is he gonna is he gonna stay at shortstop and obviously he could play there if he if he needed to if the Yankees needs didn't uh, force him over to second base but this I think the even if the game power didn't show up there's potential as he as he filled out to grow into that power and I remember seeing him uh, he was down here in Houston uh, about a month ago. And I remember thinking he's really small and being shocked by that. I wonder how much of that, because he's listed at 6'1", 200, and I wonder how much of that is just the uh, the Yankees warping our perception of what big is, you know? Because Gary Sanchez is the size of a, of a 1980s offensive guard, and he looks small next to Judge and Stanton and CeCe and all those other guys. 
Yeah, if you're not the size of Rob Gronkowski, you can't play on this year's Yankees. So he seems uh, he seems tiny by comparison. But yeah, he's been he's been phenomenal. I, I think the other thing with him is he's been so good defensively. Like he's made a couple of errors yesterday's game. He had a bad sort of first against the Astros, and uh, Yuli Gurriel ended up scoring off of it. Um, but he's just made a, a bunch of phenomenal defensive plays at second base. So I think uh, not only with the bat, but he's also been a huge presence for them uh, defensively as well. Yeah, having that that youth and that uh, the ability to sort of move those shortstop skills over to second base is is huge. And you know, it's it's so early; you can't really judge off the advanced numbers uh, based on thirty games. But he looks incredible up the middle. One thing, one weakness, because we've got to probe his game for for weaknesses. Uh, John Sterling's home run call is is like a good glaber. Swung on, and there goes deep left. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. Over the bullpen into the crowd. It's Glaber Day. He hits a three-run home run to left field. And like a good glaber, Torres is there. And the Yankees take a 5-2 lead. Can... I'll I'll admit to not listening to a lot of John Sterling. Can we stop this? Like, is there anything we could do to to put a stop to this? I, I kind of like this home run call, to be honest. I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so much yeah. better than it's so much better than Giancarlo Stanton's home run call that is in Italian, I believe it is. Swung on and drilled to deep right field. That ball's high. It is far. It is gone. Giancarlo. Non de Medicar, that ball sure travel far, Giancarlo. Even though Giancarlo Stanton is not Italian, uh, I, I think as a Yankees fan, I've gotten to the point where there are some John Sterling home run calls that are like so bad and so over the top corny that I find them somewhat endearing. And I, uh, I think the Glaber one would fall into this camp as opposed to the Stanton one, which is an unmitigated disaster. So... He was hitting at the bottom of the lineup, and and Torres has moved up. I think he hit fifth the other day. How integral a part of this team do you think he's going to be going for? Because he wasn't necessarily part of the opening day plans, but even by the end of May, he's turned into, I guess you'd have to say, one of the one of the foundational hitters in this admittedly very deep lineup. Yeah, I mean, I think he could be. I mean, at this point, again, I've only seen him play for a month in the majors, and he's far exceeded my expectations. But I think he's third. Um, third in the Yankees in war already. Um, and I think I saw a stat that he and Ozzy Albies, who you mentioned of the Braves, are both on track to have a war of better than five so far this season. And the only other, mm-hmm. only other players since like the 60s who've had, who were under 21 and had a war of five or better were Manny Machado, Mike Trout, and Bryce Harper. So like, again, I don't want to get too, too, too far ahead of myself. And he obviously has only had one good month, but I don't think he needs to be the best player on this team, but I definitely think he's a better hitter than the nine hole where he he's basically been slotted up until the Memorial Day game against the Astros. So let me ask you uh, just a couple general Yankee questions. The Yankees, the the Red Sox, uh, the Astros, the Mariners are are in the in the race, and there's not a whole lot of separation between the Yankees, Red Sox, uh, and Astros, which uh, I think you you would have expected going into this season. Um, how do you feel about, I guess the starting rotation was, was kind of the one weakness and I didn't think it was that big a weakness and Severino's pitched great, but Sonny Gray has not Jordan Montgomery's gotten hurt. How do you feel about 
going through the rest of the season with say Domingo Herman and you know, starting every every fifth game, or do they? Do you think they need to make a move? I think they probably need to make a move. I mean, the the rotation. So Sonny Gray has been awful. Um, you mentioned Herman, who's been really inconsistent. Tanaka does that thing where he he sort of cruises through three innings, then allows like a bloop, a bunt, or a walk, or whatever, and then just like a four hundred and fifty foot home run. So his whip's good, but he's given up a lot of runs. So I, other Severino's been great. Um, beyond him, Sabathia has sort of cooled off from where he was at the beginning of the season. So I feel great about the lineup. I don't feel extremely comfortable about who we're putting on the mound. Yeah. I have one, one more quick question for you on Glaber, uh, if you don't mind. Yeah. Obviously, the big thing with him was was the, the trade. They got him from the Cubs in that deadline deal for Aroldis Chapman. Uh, a few mm-hmm. years back, and I've heard Michael Kay has talked a lot about this on Yes, and it's sort of, I've seen a bunch of articles already about this. The Cubs won the World Series, right, after getting after getting yes. Aroldis Chapman. First World Series since 1908, right? 08, that was the, that was the big thing. Mm-hmm. But they've given up this guy who, I mean, Addison Russell has taken a step back this year. Ian Happ has strikeout problems, who are sort of the guys that they were counting on. Javi Baez has been great, but the rest of their middle infield isn't doing quite as well as I think they probably would have expected. Is that still a deal that you think the Cubs do all over again? I mean, they won the World Series, but obviously giving up a guy like Torres for half a season of Chapman sort of in a vacuum, it seems like a, a win for the Yankees in that trade. I mean, it's definitely a win for the Yankees. I I think it depends on how you look at it. I think if you're if your team won the World Series and they have a set of young middle infielders as good as Baez, Russell, and Hap, regardless of, of their various struggles this season, I think Torres is better than any of them, but also, like, flags fly forever. And I'm kind of, I'm generally, I generally fall under the, if you win a championship, then who cares? Uh, within, you know, within reason. And I think this is a, as about, as lopsided a trade as you could as you could make and still have it be okay. And I think having happen Hap, Russell, and Baez helps to to sort of mitigate that. Um but you know Chapman wasn't a huge factor in the World Series. He wasn't that Andrew Miller type that that they were really expecting him to be. Uh for that one season, of course he walked and then Glaber Torres would be among the best players on the Cubs. I don't I don't know if he's as good as Chris Bryant or or Anthony Rizzo yet, but he'd be probably in that next tier down. So this is a huge win for the Yankees, but if you ask a Cubs, you'd have to ask the Cubs fan, but I can't imagine they'd be disappointed. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean I the like you said, I think this is I think when you said it's about as lopsided of a trade that you sort of still get away with. Um I think that's my stance on this too. If the Cubs won the World Series. And the yes. Cubs have been waiting to win the World Series for more than a century. So I think that sort of justifies everything. But yeah, as a Yankees fan, this sort of goes up there with the DD for Shane Green trade as, as a, one of the all-time catchment specials. Or at least oh, for sure. like it has the, has the makings of that so far. Right. And it's like it, when the Phillies won the World Series in, in 08, like that was the first time I'd ever witnessed a championship team that that I rooted for and they gave up Michael Bourne for Brad Lidge and that was and Michael Bourne was really good for a long time and Brad Lidge was only good for that one year and nobody cared and I think that's just the way I think honestly I think that's a healthy way to view sports because I think we can get and this is a, a completely different conversation but I think we can get too obsessed with process like feeling like you're winning every single trade, which is important, but it's not as important as winning in the long term. And if you get a if you get a championship out of it, then 
I don't know that there's too high, too high a price to pay. So I agree with you. Flags fly forever. I think that's the I think that's the right approach. That said, I am uh, I'm very happy to have Glaber at second base for the Yankees right now. Yeah, I would imagine. So death taxes and the march of time and us feeling old by uh, uh, after looking at sons of players. I I don't even want to say grew up watching like spent our spent our uh, our actual. Uh, young adulthoods watching like I remember Vlad Guerrero as a prospect so we'll be talking about how old we feel in future episodes but until then thanks for coming on Ben yeah thanks for having me with a blast thanks again to Ben Glicksman for coming on we'll be right back with Ben Lindbergh after one more quick break there are five things business owners can count on from LegalZoom. Number one, reliability. More than 2 million people have used LegalZoom to start their businesses. LLCs, S-Corps, nonprofits, DBAs, and more. You can use LegalZoom to get started the right way. Number two, experiences. They've been helping all types of business owners for 17 years, and you can count on LegalZoom to help with all the details. Number three, helpful support. They have the right people standing by for your, ready for your questions, all based in the U.S., Number four, legal advice. LegalZoom isn't a law firm, but they have a network of independent attorneys licensed in all 50 states. They can review contracts, help with employment law, and advise you on many of the hurdles that pop up when you're running a business. And finally, number five, no surprises. LegalZoom provides complete transparency with upfront pricing, customer reviews, and a satisfaction guarantee. Check out LegalZoom today to see how they can make life better for you and your business. And don't forget to enter MLB at checkout to save even more. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com. So we've talked to Zach, we've talked to Ben Glicksman, we've talked about Glaber Torres, we love talking about Shohei Otani on this podcast. Zach has written about Mookie Betts, who's having a great season. I will write about Mookie Betts in the weeks to come, but to end this episode of the Ringer MLB show, I think it's time to talk to the OG about the OG. So here comes Ben Lindbergh to talk about Mike Trout. I'm very happy to because my thought process going into every week really as I desperately try to make content for the ringer.com is how long has it been since I wrote or talked about trout? Has it been long enough that I can talk about trout again? And it's always a good week when the answer is yes. So here we are. Yeah, you brought up and this is in the the it feels like I find myself hating Mookie Betts a little bit because he's <laughs> awesome and he's incredibly fun to watch and I I love his game. He's an incredible player, but it feels like he is set up in opposition to Trout. Like yeah. we must as if we get so bored with the answer that to who is the best player in baseball. Oh, it must be Trout. We get so bored with that right. that we need to go find another guy. Yeah. And I don't want to diminish Mookie Betts and the great things that he's doing and great things that, that he's capable of by propping him up as this bizarre strongman. So we're talking uh the reason we're bringing this up is Trout went five for five with three doubles and a home run over the weekend. Uh, I pulled up his game his game log to make sure I got his numbers right, and I saw a stretch earlier this month where he had multiple hits in four straight games, uh, mm-hmm. including three hits in three straight games. And we just take this guy for granted. So I just wanted to, you know, get back to to our roots, you know, because as much as as we can just gush about Shohei Otani uh, at the drop of a hat. I don't want to, you know, we don't want to forget that Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. 
Yeah. And I'm with you on Mookie, by the way. I tweeted something positive about Trout over the weekend, and I got a bunch of replies asking, hasn't Mookie been amazing too? And yes, Mookie has been amazing, and I don't want to downplay what he's doing either. He's probably been even better than Trout offensively on a per-plate appearance basis. But the thing is that Trout is in his seventh season of being the best player in baseball. And it's great if Mookie gets to his level or close to his level this year. He's a great player. But we're at this point now where Trout has already amassed a Hall of Fame career (laughs) in his first six-plus seasons in baseball. And so it's fascinating to see him add to that legacy and do things slightly differently every year, too. So when Mookie gets to the point that he has the body of work that Trout has, I will talk as much about Mookie. But right now, I am more interested, I think, in talking about Trout, as great as Mookie is. And it's funny, you mentioned the 5-for-5 game and the multi-hit games. I think, in a way, the most impressive hit Trout had in that 5-for-5 game was the one you didn't mention, the single. single. Yeah, his last hit in that game was just a, a grounder to short, essentially. It was kind of in the hole. It was deep short, but it wouldn't have been a hit for most guys. And he just burned down the line. I mean, he is about as fast as he's ever been. And so not only can he hit the home run and the three doubles, but then he can beat out an infield hit as well as almost everyone too. And you mentioned the multi-hit games. In a way, it was more impressive when he went for a, went through a slump, right? He was struggling. I think he went something like 0 for 21 or, you know, he had mm-hmm. 21 consecutive at-bats where he didn't get a hit. And during that span, his on-base percentages were still like close to 400 just because he was walking so much. He was getting on base. He was stealing bases. He was playing great defense. So he does everything. And, you know, this year he is leading MLB in home runs as we speak. He is also leading in on-base percentage. He's walked more than he's struck out. He's stolen 12 bases without once being caught. And I think one of the things that is really sending his war into the stratosphere is he's been better on defense, at least according to the stats that we have. So whether you go with the defensive run saved and the ultimate zone rating or StatCast says he's been better too, and that is reportedly something that he has worked on, that he tried to work with the Angels to improve his positioning because his defensive stats were slipping somewhat. So whether you credit the Angels for that or Trout, He seems to have been a more valuable defender on top of everything else. So there's just nothing he doesn't do at this point. One thing I find interesting about Trout is he put up a 10 and a half win season as a 20 year old rookie and not and not even an entire season because he spent a couple of weeks down in the minors. But you look at a guy like that and think, well, he's just not going to have a normal aging curve Mm -hmm. uh, because you can't improve from age 20 to 26 at the in the ways that. Uh, that most players do and still play by the normal rules of physics, you know? Yes, and, right. But he's, but in the past couple of seasons, and it looked like he had plateaued, that he was just going to be, he was just going to be the same, you know, maybe there would be differences from year to year within his game. He would walk mm-hmm. more some years, he would hit for a little bit more power, he would run a little bit more in, in other years. But in the past two years, 2017 and 2018, um, he is matured and become a better percentage player in a way that a lot of guys do in their mid-20s after several years in the big leagues. And last year was the first time he he walked more than he struck out. This year, he's, like you said, 12 steals and 12 attempts. He's running more and also running at a, a very high success rate. And mm-hmm. this is that's something, and this might just be the product of uh, growing up watching a lot of Chase Utley, but I've, 
I've been so impressed by guys who just literally never get caught and still run at a, a relatively high volume. And he's yeah. doing you know doing that while, like you said, leading the American League in home runs for the first time. He's put up uh, career high OBPs each of the last three seasons, career high slugging percentages at least so far each of the last two. So it's it seemed impossible, but he is aging to a certain extent like a normal player. Yeah, right. To mirror the typical aging curve, <laughs> Trout as a rookie with a 10-win season essentially has to have a, what, 14-win peak. And that is basically what he's doing right now, which is almost unheard of. And you're right. In that first season when he was already the best player in baseball, he wasn't in the top 20 in home runs in baseball. I mean, power was part of his game. He hit 30 homers, but he wasn't an extreme power threat. And now he is leading the league. And I, I don't think it's totally surprising, say, that he has added power. You sort of expect that with guys as they get yeah. older and stronger. And and he's he's had a 40 homer season. And you right. look at him and like he, you look, he looks like the guy who could tear the doors off a of Volkswagen with yes. his bare hands. He's, yes. <laughs> the power is in there. Right, which I think is always the thing that has been most visually striking about him. You know, he's not the flashiest player, and so it is easy to overlook how great he is. The one thing I think that stands out and really catches your eye is how fast he is, despite how big he is. And that is still true. It just doesn't look like he should be able to move as fast as he does. And mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, he hit 41 homers one year. He hit 36 homers one year. He was more of a strikeout guy, though, in that time. I mean... It came with the typical trade-off that it does for players where if you're going to hit for more power, you're also going to miss the ball more often. And now he doesn't have to make that trade-off anymore as the rest of the league strikes out more and more often. He is striking out less often and yet still hitting for a ton of power. And he's just become more selective. He just has one of the best combinations in baseball of swing rate inside the strike zone. So you, you want to swing at strikes. He does do that. And then he doesn't chase. He doesn't swing at pitches outside the strike zone. And so he, I think, has really raised his game in that respect, which is probably just a function of experience and age and seeing thousands and thousands of pitches. But you're right. There was no way to know that Trout coming onto the scene as what looked like a finished product, or at least the best product there was, would make these strides that the typical player does, and somehow he has. So the most interesting thing about this is sort of the meta the meta narrative around this, which is why we feel, the, and I could see when he lost those two MVP votes to Miguel Cabrera, for instance, or when when he lost that to Josh Donaldson, you could make the the argument that he that Donaldson actually had a better season or a similar mm -hmm. season with a better narrative case. Um, but there seems to be this unwillingness to accept how far and above he is the rest of the competition. I wonder if if that's just if to a certain extent Trout is still underrated or if there's a or if it is like I said, the the boredom with which is there is no debate about mm -hmm. who the best player in baseball is right now. So you have to try to frame the conversation in such a way that you get it to to where Trout isn't uh, isn't the guy you'd pick, um, you know. You could talk about, and I don't think I don't I don't think you necessarily believe this, but I think it's an easy thing to blame on hot take culture. But Mickey Mantle won three MVPs in a decade where he probably should have won eight. Mm -hmm. So this is not a, a a particularly new phenomenon. I think I I wonder what it is, and I'm wondering I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. 
I think it's partly the team he plays for, and we can talk about that. The fact that he hasn't been able to carry this team to the playoffs single-handedly, which still seems to be something that people expect of baseball players, even though it doesn't work that way in baseball. So that's part of it. And of course, he plays on the West Coast and half the country's population is going to sleep during his games. So that has something to do with it. And I think it maybe is just fatigue of the same best player year in and year out. He is now in his seventh season of being the best. And so I think maybe there's some natural inclination to look for the new guy, the new story. And maybe it's just partly a function of his game. It's always been maybe a little difficult to realize how good he is without looking at the stats, without looking at the complete picture of what he's doing. And if you read the comment sections on ESPN articles, which I don't recommend, but if you do, why you're doing that, (laughs) you'll see people saying, you know, war is designed to make Mike Trout look good as if there is some kind of conspiracy theory. But I sort of understand what they're saying in that it's a stat that makes him look better then the traditional stats make him look because he doesn't have the huge RBI totals and he is not hitting the ball as hard as Aaron Judge. He's not the biggest guy. He's not the fastest guy. You know, he's not winning a batting title. I mean, his traditional stats don't stand out in the same way. And so I think it's harder to get your head around everything he does. He is Not that war was designed for him, but in a way he was designed for war because he just does everything well. And you look at any one column in the stat line and maybe it won't wow you. Maybe now it will that he's leading the league in home runs, but in the past. But you just add them all up and you get the best player in baseball. And not everyone is willing to do that arithmetic to get to that answer. And I wonder wonder how much of it is he was just the best player in baseball from day one. And I wonder if, if there was almost a a fatigue in advance, like if, Oh, if this guy's the best player in baseball from age 20, like we're not going to have a fun MVP (laughs) conversation for the next 14 years. Cause even you look at Pujols, Pujols came up and, and was not as good as bonds for a couple of years or a rod played under Griffey's shadow or the, the shadow of the, of McGuire and Sosa and that uh, sort of back half of the nineties, uh, kind of player and Trout was just it from day one and I wonder if not having the that same kind there you know there might have been some resistance because we weren't used to him yet when when he was actually the best player in baseball although mm-hmm. there there wasn't really that with uh with Judge last year so I, right. you know I don't know what it is it just feels like you can I find the best uh, it's sort of like the LeBron rule, right? Like the best player in, in the game among normal people. Mm-hmm. You know, we can have that conversation. I find that conversation interesting, you know, certainly a lot more interesting than trying to find ways to elevate whoever it is at the moment, whether it's Harper or Donaldson or Betts up to up to Trout's level. Yeah. And I think it has to partly be the playoff thing, the fact that he is taking October off most years. And it's an interesting conversation to have now because of what's going on in basketball. I mean, I don't know that we necessarily want baseball to work in a way where Trout carries Cole Calhoun to the World Series for eight straight years, but it would be nice if he could at least make the playoffs from time to time. I think the Angels are an exciting team. He's an exciting player. It would be good for baseball to have Trout and Otani and Simmons playing in October. And so it's sort of a flaw, obviously, of the Angels and of their team construction, but also of the sport that you do have the best player in baseball 
possibly the best player ever, or at least the best start to a career. And he can't even make a division series or a wild card game. I mean, it's a bummer that he doesn't do that. And the way baseball works, you can't send Trout up when the game is on the line unless he happens to be up in the order next. That's just the way it works. You can't control where the ball goes or have him defend the other team's best player. Baseball just doesn't work that way. And there are ways in which that's good. I think it's an element of unpredictability, certainly, that you could argue makes the regular season more interesting. But I think it is a problem when you do have the best player, perhaps, that any of us will ever see just kind of sitting on the sidelines every year when the games matter the most. So let's close on this. And and Zach and I talked about this because we were talking about the the Mariners-Denarts fan trade uh, earlier in the show. Um BP has Seattle at about even odds to make the at least the wild card game. Mm-hmm. Um and the Angels with their rough week while the Mariners have gone like 10 and 3 has uh, has dropped them a few games back. Yeah. The Angels would have been I feel like heavy favorites to get at least one of those wild card spots mm-hmm. as recently as a couple of weeks ago. So where do you you know, what do you think of their chances now? Yeah, as we speak, I just averaged the three main playoff odds providers scores for the Angels, and they're at 27% right now to make the playoffs, which is not great. I think they are better than the Mariners. I think they've played better than the Mariners even so far, even though they trail them by four and a half games as we speak. I think they'll be better than the Mariners going forward, but they do have to overcome this margin here. And I don't know whether they can do it. I think it'll be close. I think it'll be a good race. I don't know that they can add that much to this team. Of course, I would have said the same about the Mariners, given how dry their farm system is these days. Yeah, I, the Angels' farm system has gotten a lot better in the yeah. past year or two. So I, I think I don't know if like they could put out the kind of package that that the Cubs put out for uh, for Rollis Chapman, for instance, mm-hmm. and maybe go get another starting pitcher. But they can get somebody if if that's where they want to go. Yeah. I mean, it's a fairly well-rounded team. I think if you look at their pitching, their defense, their offense, it's all average or maybe a bit above. I think they're a pretty good defensive team. Trout obviously helps elevate their offense. And then the pitching is the weak point, but hasn't been bad. I don't know. I think it wouldn't be too tough to upgrade. I mean, often when you have a team that is just really terrible in one respect, it's easier to upgrade that kind of team because it's it's easier to go from sub-replacement to average than it is from average to really good. But I think there are moves they could make, and I do think that they're probably the best team in this wildcard race, aside from the AL East winner of whatever the first wildcard slot is. So, But, you know, Oakland is a game behind the Angels as we speak now, too. And Oakland's a pretty quality Don't team. Don't you start, too. <laughs> I was kind I of get on enough the, of this from the bus, too. So oh my God. I, I'm, I'm with him on that one. But it's a good race, I think. You know, for for Trout's sake, I kind of hope he actually gets back to the playoffs. Although I think the combined agony of all of Mariners fandom might possibly outweigh that if we're looking at it from a utilitarian perspective. All right. Well, we will touch on this more. The, like every time we just need to to give send a message, you know, throw a, a brush back pitch, like relax. You know, yes. this is we know who the best player in baseball is. So we will find uh, find something to talk about next week. Maybe there will be a new new darling we have to tear down. But until then, it's always good to to get back to what originally brought us all together. Yes, it is. Good talking to you.
Oh, wait, before you go, we were joking yesterday about hijacking this podcast and talking <laughs> about Solo. So yeah. let's let's devote 120 seconds to Solo takes. Sure. We did a whole episode on Star Trek last year, so <laughs> two minutes on Star Wars seems fair. I really like Solo. I think it's getting a bad rap. I wonder whether part of it is confirmation bias. We read so much about the director changes and the reshoots and Alden being terrible that I wonder whether people were extra on the lookout for those things when they came into the theater. But even if you didn't think it was anything amazing, I understand that. I just had a lot of fun. I had a good time at the old theater. And I don't know why we're holding Star Wars to a standard where every movie needs to be transcendent and a timeless classic and an epic, given that there have been bad Star Wars movies in the past. So the franchise is not perfect, not unbesmirched. And in my mind, growing up at a time when there were no Star Wars movies, followed by a time when there were bad Star Wars movies, I think we've got it pretty good with either a good or a great Star Wars movie every single year. And so I don't think we need to hold this series to the standard that we don't hold Bond to or Star Trek or Fast and the Furious. Any series with many installments is going to have the occasional one that is not an all-timer. But this was fun. Yeah, I I agree. It was fun. It was it was fine. I liked it. Uh, I think part of the reason we hold Star Wars to such a high standard is because it was, and I wrote about this last year. It was it, like there was this um, this almost religious qu- uh, quality to the scarcity of it. And now that there's yeah. so much of it, it, we've just got it. It wasn't like Bond or Fast and the Furious, and now it is. And I think yeah. if once you start viewing it that way, this is fine. I thought I have always liked Alden Ehrenreich. I thought he was okay. Yeah, there, it dragged in some places. I don't know that it it was a good looking movie. I don't know that it was a particularly imaginative movie. Mm-hmm. But it was. Uh, it's also so hard to make a bad heist movie, right? And, and was, so this and this was a pretty good heist movie. Yeah, and it was Ron Howard. It was workmanlike and polished, mm-hmm. and there was still some sort of edge left over from the original Lord and Miller script. Occasional jokes that you wouldn't normally get in a Ron Howard movie or a Star Wars movie. I thought it worked for the most part, and the people I saw it with liked it a lot too. And I thought maybe the only time when it really faltered was at the end when they went out of their way to try to tie it to every other yeah, trilogy. I, I wish, I wish they stop doing that i wish yeah like, and they they did the same thing with rogue one where the mm-hmm. worst parts of that were trying to tie it in with and right. obviously that was explicitly tied into a new hope but the worst parts of that were like trying to deliver some positive message about the rebellion in a movie where mm-hmm. it you know it just seems so out of place yeah and even in this one without getting into any spoilers there were some similar very visible efforts to tie this into other movies at the end and i appreciate the easter eggs but i didn't think it really needed that kind of connective tissue i thought it stood up pretty well on its own and could exist on its own so that bothered me a bit but on the whole good movie not an incredible movie but it doesn't bother me that star wars is now like any other series that's okay when disney bought this franchise There was a lot of hand-wringing, and I thought, look, worst case, they make bad Star Wars movies. It's not any worse than having no Star Wars movies, in my mind. If you like the old Star Wars movies and you don't like the new ones, that's fine. The old ones are still there. You can go back and watch them. You don't have to watch the new ones. But if you enjoy these, then I think Star Wars fans are pretty spoiled these days. All right. We're coming up on twice as long as as I (laughs) set aside, so that might be getting too indulgent. All right. Uh, All right. Well... Talk to talk to us about Solo on Twitter. Yes, uh, please. Where we're not expected to talk about baseball. And I'll talk to you next week. All right.
That'll do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. As always, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Thanks to Zach Cram, Ben Glicksman, and Ben Lindbergh for coming on. Thanks to producer Jim Cunningham for putting all this together. Thanks to Jerry Depoto, Glaber Torres, Mike Trout, and Alden Ehrenreich for providing content. I encourage you to enjoy the best weekend of baseball out of the entire year, the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. Illinois was robbed. Justice for the fight in Brent Spillane's. Look for UConn to take the Conway Regional out of the number two slot. We'll be back to talk about, well, maybe not that, but more MLB action next week. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Zach Cram about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're gonna talk to Zach Cram about a trade or two. Is what did Jerry DePoto?